How well do you do when you get criticized by other people? As poorly as I do? How good are you at self-criticism? I mean, how accurately have you identified your own weaknesses and shortcomings and sins? I pose those questions to you because we have come to 1 Corinthians 4 in our sermon series on this famous letter, but we are going to take a little detour before we get into it because, quite honestly, I don't really understand what Paul's really teaching in the opening verses of chapter 4. Now, if you think it's my job to understand Paul, I will just quote the Apostle Peter to you in his second letter, chapter 3, where he said, Our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. (laughs) So there. I think we already know from the scriptures and from our Christian experience that we often feel... the correcting hand of God as we go through a crisis of There's a story of a woman who's in glory now. She was part of this church. Her name was Margaret Stevens. Both of her husbands died. But one morning in her first marriage, she woke up only to find that her husband had died in the night. He was on the kitchen floor. And when she went from her bedroom to the kitchen floor and saw him there dead, she immediately walked back to her bedroom, knelt down by the side of the bed, and regave herself to Christ. Because the Holy Spirit had convicted her, rightly so, that she had really walked away from the Lord and put him very low on the totem pole. But friends, it's also true that the scriptures teach And I know that many of you know this. It's confirmed in our Christian experience that all believers, all of them, people and leaders, are to look for the correcting hand of God in the criticisms and challenges that come from other people, especially from other believers. And that in fact, that is one of the principal means that the Holy Spirit uses to triumph over our sinful flesh, to change us, to reestablish our true character as children of God with soft hearts, to love him and to love others, and to actually desire to be disciplined by God, that we might love him and love others better than we do, and who say no to our old character as children of Adam, to our self-defending and self-protecting hearts that are as hard as stone. But I also maintain that at first reading, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 in the first five verses looks like It contradicts the teaching of the Word of God in other places and contradicts what we actually find in our Christian experience. Because there in the first five verses of chapter 4, Paul says this, Regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But, listen to this, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Now, that's how it's translated by the ESV. It's literally by any human day. That is, by any merely human occasion for judgment or evaluation. And then he says this, in fact... I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware, and this is even more dramatic, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, it sounds like Paul's teaching that Christian leaders and teachers are above criticism from other believers and are free to write it off if it comes. Now, you might say, well, he's only talking about his role as an apostle. When we come to that text, we'll look at that as well. Secondly, it sounds like Paul is teaching that although he is a sinner, that although he is a son of Adam, he has a completely clear conscience about the way he was living out every part of his ministry. I am not aware of anything against myself. And not only that, but he doesn't even look to see if he might be going off the rails in some way. He doesn't seem to do any self-examination, any soul-searching. It's as if he's saying, no, that's all just in the final judgment. Verse 3, I do not even judge myself. Wow. So that's my problem with these verses, and I mean that literally, it's my problem, it's not Paul's. Paul is an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, the Christ of God, and Christ does not teach error through his inspired apostles. We'll come back to this fairly self-defensive posture that Paul takes here in 1 Corinthians 4, in another sermon. I do indeed find it very puzzling. But we have to wrestle with these hard-to-understand passages that we sometimes find in Paul's teaching. Today, though, we're going to do a detour because the principle that we want to talk about today grows in importance in my own thinking, in my study of the Scriptures, in my own life and especially in my work as your pastor. And I consider it crucial that we don't misunderstand Paul and minimize the importance of this principle that in fact all believers, including leaders, are to look for the correcting hand of God in the criticisms and challenges that come from other people, from any quarter, but particularly from other believers. One of the most penetrating corrections that God spoke to me came through our son in 2004. He was struggling in a romantic relationship and I was trying to help him because I had struggled in my 20s in a similar way, so I thought, but it was like the more I helped him, 
the less he felt helped. And after writing him a long letter where I thought I was being helpful, he wrote back. He was seeing a counselor at the time. And he said, you know, this letter is not really inviting me to have a relationship with you. Didn't sleep much that night. Well, we worked that stuff, and I said, you're my son, I love you, I'm sorry. My door's open, but the ball's in your court. Maybe down the road we can talk. Well, eventually we did. He called up and said he'd like to speak one night. And so he came over. We had just been watching a movie about Vietnam, and I mean... Both Kath and I were just completely emotionally raw. It was a movie about the war in Vietnam. And so our son John showed up. Kath went upstairs. We went in the living room. I made some tea. And I began to try to explain to him what I thought was insight that I was gaining about how I had failed as a father. And at a certain point, he just said to me, put your tea down and stand up. And I, he moved toward me. I thought he was actually going to punch me in the nose. <laughs> but he moved toward me. And he put his arms around me. And he hugged me. And he said, this is what I needed as a boy. Affection. As I was all lost in explaining with words what I thought I was understanding about my failures. And of course, that was a tremendous breakthrough in our relationship. But it took my son to confront me. So we're going to do a detour. The detour is a story in the life of a believing leader, King David. If you'll turn to your bulletin insert, you'll find it there. This is a story of King David and his confrontation with Shimei. He was a man from the family of the late King Saul. The time, probably not too many years after 1000 BC. If you want to go home this week, and ponder the larger story, that might be helpful to do that. You can go back and you can start in Second Samuel 11, where we read about David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her unsuspecting husband Uriah. He was one of David's best and very loyal soldiers. He would be in what we today know as the special forces, kind of a bodyguard soldier. <clears throat> then in chapter 12, God comes and confronts Nathan, confronts David rather through Nathan, through the very clear criticism of another. And after the penny had dropped and Nathan brilliantly got David to basically accuse himself, this is what was leveled against David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. That is your family. Because you have despised me 
And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel in broad daylight. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan spoke the gospel to David. The Lord also has put away your sin. Because you see, people were saved by and they lived by grace under the old covenant as well. You shall not die, even though that's what the law of Moses demanded, death for adultery. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child who is born to you shall die. And what follows then in those chapters after 12 is really the playing out of God's disciplining hand in those chilling words that he spoke to David. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your family. So in the very next chapter, in chapter 13, we hear the horrific story of the rape of David's daughter Tamar by her half-brother Amnon, the king's firstborn son, and about David's complete passivity in the face of that despicable violence done to his own daughter. We read also about Tamar's full brother Absalom, another one of David's sons, who in the face of his father's abdication takes justice into his own hands and avenges his sister's humiliation by murdering Amnon, his half-brother, heir to the throne. It happened at a family party. Absalom flees the country. David will not allow him to return to Israel. Eventually he comes back, but David says, he must never be in my presence. Well, Absalom cannot stand being shunned like this. And in a couple of years, he begins to plot against his father. Four years of scheming go by, and when the time is ripe, the coup is launched. Absalom's men, they crown him as king at Hebron. That's where David had been coronated. And they begin their march to capture Jerusalem, the capital city where the king's palace is. And friends, we have to say this. David was one of the biggest losers in the Bible as a father. He was one of the biggest losers as a father. Well, that brings us to our text that's in the bulletin, chapter 15. This coup is launched, and at verse 13, a messenger comes to David to report on it. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him in At Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So the word goes out, all those loyal to David, they scramble to get out of town. They march out of Jerusalem, apparently in a big column. Soldiers in the front of the king. Soldiers then the king and his household behind, walking in the midst of people on either side. 
And what follows, we've skipped forward to verse 23, but what follows in these verses is one of the most pain-filled dramatic scenes in the whole of the scriptures. And all the land, better to translate their countryside, these are people who've come out of their homes nearby to see this procession, all the countryside wept aloud as all the king's people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people, his people, passed on toward the wilderness. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Now David meets various people but we're going to skip forward to his encounter with Shimei. He's a member of the royal family of the former King Saul, who is Abishai. We'll hear about him. We'll come to that in a minute. When King David, verse 5 of chapter 16, came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. This was very daring. The soldiers, David's soldiers are everywhere. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan River. And there he refreshed himself. David is weeping as he leaves Jerusalem. He is humbled and shamed and cut to the heart by his son's open rebellion against him. And likely also by his own tremendous moral failures as a king. And I would think also as a father, why else is he crying tears if he is not keenly aware of his own real guilt, not the guilt that Shimei accuses him of, 
Because it's very clear when you read 2 Samuel carefully, David is not responsible for the death of Saul and all these men that Shimei is so angry about who have died. This is the central thing I want to set before you to ponder. If this leader, the king of Israel, was looking even in the blasphemous cursing of his enemy, looking for the confronting and correcting hand of the God he knew was committed to him, then how much more should we look for that correcting hand of God? In fact, expect it in the hard criticisms of our friends, our family, our fellow believers, looking first and foremost not to how it is that they deliver the criticism, how kind they were in cushioning their criticism, but wanting to know, friends, above all things, above all things, above everything, whether that criticism is true. And is a message from the God I know wants to change me and often waits to change me. Because if it is true, then that criticism can become a key to a door into a room in my heart and life I have neglected or maybe a room that I have kept everybody else out of. Now I know what's probably going on inside some of you. Some of you are recalling painful things from your past, some even from your childhood. Awful and cutting and cruel words said to you as criticism. And those words have been burned into your consciousness. And they have hurt you deeply. And you struggle even now, perhaps, to break free of their power. Please hear me carefully. I am not justifying Shimei's recklessness here. Criticism that is cruel and full of bitterness and cursing and cutting words and foul anger is always destructive. It is always counterproductive. It is always sinful. And you should never, ever do it. And people should not be doing it to you. David knows that. That's why he says to Abishai in verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me in this cursing is the implication. And that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. I'm not trying to justify Shimei's cruel recklessness. I'm not even saying that God was confronting and correcting David through this awful cursing, 
this awful and angry mouth. I think David was actually wrong about that. I don't think the Lord was taking up Shimei's cursing and cursing David. What I'm saying is look at David's attitude. Look at his heart in response to Shimei's cursing and compare it with Abishai. David is humble here. He's only thinking about God. And so it seems to me, so keenly aware of his own miserable failings as a king and probably as a father, that he is actually open to the possibility that this awful, dagger-like criticism being hurled at him is the very voice of the God he has so offended. Not the God who would speak to David this way because he hated him, but the God who had warned David that he would surely discipline him and his sons if they disobeyed, but he would never, never take his love from them. Well, then there's Abishai. Who is Abishai? Abishai is brother to Joab. Joab is David's top military general. They are sons of Zeruiah. Guess who Zeruiah is? David's sister. These men are fiercely loyal to David, but even more loyal to their own place as military brass. They are brave soldiers, but they're arrogant, they are brutal, and they are cruel. They are deceitful connivers and double-crossers, not really the kind of guys you'd like to have as a pair of nephews. In 2 Samuel 3, we read about David actually pronouncing a curse on Abishai and Joab for the murder behind his back of Saul's general Abner, after Abner had come over to David's side. It says there, actually, that David was afraid of these two brothers under him. Much like people surmise that Ramzan Kadyrov, the current muscle-flexing Chechen tyrant who boasts of his loyalty to Russia, maybe keeps Mr. Putin awake at night. David, though, is humble. He's only thinking about God. Abishai, on the other hand, is arrogant here. He's only thinking about the criticizer, Shimei. Abishai is he's full of indignation. He's full of outrage. And he spits out contempt and ridicule by calling Shimei a dead dog. That actually wouldn't be so much of an insult in our day when you can take your dog to a doggy psychiatrist and a doggy dentist, but in those days that was truly an insult to call somebody a dead dog. You see, retaliation, that's Abishai's middle name. He wants to put Shimei's head in a basket with one swipe. He is full of murderous anger. Now it's true that Abishai's cursing is not aimed at, or Shimei's cursing is not, named, is not aimed at Abishai personally, but it is aimed at everything that Abishai has given his life to. And so here, 
the writer of 2 Samuel sets side by side so wonderfully and poignantly David's response to the situation and Abishai's. In the one, we see the angry self-defensiveness against pain that is inspired by the sinful flesh. In the other, we see the humble self-exposure to pain inspired by the Spirit of God who wants to make us more like Jesus. I titled this sermon, I am David, I am Abishai, because I see myself in Abishai. I recognize Abishai's instinct to draw his sword. I recognize that as an impulse in my own soul when I am criticized. Something in me wants to fight back, to repel the criticism. Don't you ever feel that? I feel it, friends, and I am ashamed of it. But I often feel it. And it isn't just the desire to defend myself. It's more. It's the desire to defeat those who criticize me. Now, I may not be consciously wanting to decapitate those who criticize me, but the subtle instinct to want to be rid of them. I recognize that in my heart. Why? Because their criticisms feel like a threat against my well-being. David, however, sees it differently. And in this, I believe he is manifesting a God-pleasing heart renewed by the Holy Spirit. And that's why if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and you are a believer in him, you have been given a new heart. And it's for that reason that you can say also, I am David. Because for David, even though at times he blows it big time, still the central thing for David in every relationship comes back to God and what God has to do with that relationship. And here specifically, whether it is God's voice speaking even in this fierce and unholy condemnation of him. Here I think David foreshadows the spirit-filled heart of the new man, full of humility toward God, full of grief, over personal sin. While Abishai is so characteristic of the spirit-quenching heart of the sinful flesh, the old Adam still in us, as Martin Luther called him, full of self-defensiveness and full of vindictiveness. All believers, Christian leaders included, are to look for the correcting hand of God in the criticisms and challenges that come from other people, from any quarter, but especially from other believers. Now, some of you may be thinking, you're kind of turning this story into an allegory of the flesh and the spirit. don't know about that. Well, let's look at what David says in another place. I've put it 
On the insert for you, it's from Psalm 141. David states it here as an enduring principle. Let a righteous person slap me. I cheated a little bit. The ESV has strike me, I think. That doesn't communicate as much to us as 21st century people. Better to translate it, let a righteous person hit me, slap me, is the sense. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. In the ancient world, this is the way you greeted a guest in your home. It was an act of hospitality to anoint someone with oil. At times it represented a blessing. But David says, let him rebuke me. That is oil for my head. That is to my good. Let my head not refuse it. And of course he prays that because he knows the instinct of his own heart. He knows that he also could be Abishai. And then there's a similar teaching from David's son Solomon from the Proverbs. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and it's literally blows. Faithful are the blows of a friend. Many are the kisses of an enemy. I had a pastor friend with an anger problem. I'm just about done, but he often complained to me that he was frustrated because he wanted his elders to hold him accountable and they wouldn't. But then here's what happened. They would try to hold him accountable and he would scream bloody murder. And so they would back off. His truest self was David. That's why he wanted them to hold him accountable. But he was also Abishai. The correcting voice of God. We should be looking for it from any quarter, but especially from the righteous, our fellow believers. Now, does this mean your criticizers are always going to be right? Absolutely not. They are sinners too, like you. You may be right, and they may be wrong. Everything has to be discerned by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that takes soul-searching prayer. That takes counsel with others. That often comes through a long inner spiritual battle of wrestling yourself open to the correcting hand of God in the other person. We had friends. The wife was an alcoholic The family was beside themselves. Professing Christian, she was. Well, one morning she came down there in the living room where their two adult children and their spouses and a person she had never laid eyes on. It was a person who was hired out of Dallas, Texas to do an intervention. And there they were, the blows, the wounds, of friends. We cannot live with you. We cannot stand it. Here's your choice. You choose your family or your alcohol. If you choose your family, there's a plane ticket. This person here 
from Dallas will accompany you to Arizona. There's a 30-day treatment program. It's up to you. We love you. We care for you. But we cannot continue to be silent in the face of your behavior. And praise the Lord. That woman went and she was helped and she was healed. Still sober today. The family reunited, involved in a church that preaches the gospel. Let a righteous person slap me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. And oh, we so need to pray with David. Oh God, let not my head refuse it.